0: If you have a Bible with you this morning, you can turn to Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find Galatians chapter 3 on page 973 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. Over the past few weeks, we've been going through our summer sermon series on the book of Galatians, and if you haven't joined us in one of those previous weeks, Galatia was a Roman province in Asia Minor. Uh, It may be helpful to think roughly in the area of modern-day Turkey. And in this book to the Galatians, Paul is seeking to answer the question, on what basis are non-Jewish people included in the family of God? So Paul is trying to clarify whether salvation in Christ alone is sufficient to be welcomed into the family of God, or whether it's also necessary to become culturally Jewish. And this conversation started because there was a group in Galatia called the Judaizers. And these people were teaching that, yes, Jesus is a really important part of being welcomed into the family of God. In fact, he is a big part of that process. But in order to really be fully into the church, you have to also adopt Jewish customs. You have to be circumcised. You have to practice Jewish religious rites in order to really be a part of the family of God. And so in this letter, we find Paul saying, that is absolutely not true. Paul says that the gospel is not Jesus plus anything, and he tells us that simply Jesus alone is the one who allows us to be welcomed into the family of God. And in this letter to the Galatians, Paul is calling these young believers out of the danger of these beliefs that they have to do more, that they have to do other things, and calling them back to the truth of the gospel that Jesus is the one who saves us, and that our inclusion in God's family is on the basis of Jesus' work alone. And what we're going to see this morning in our passage is that Paul is not simply talking about just how we are initially welcomed into the family of God, but he's also talking about the process for our continuing growth and maturing once we've been welcomed into that family. So let's take a look at this passage together. We're going to look at Galatians 3, verses 1 through 9. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's take a moment to pray together as we begin to look at this passage. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the work that you have done to draw us back near to you. And I pray that you would help us to trust you this morning, that you would help us to rely on you to do the work of making us right with you. Father, I pray that you would help us to see our own inability to make things right, and that you would help us to recognize that you are the perfecter of our faith. You are the one who can heal us. You are the one who can repair what is broken, and you promise us that you will do that if we trust in you. Jesus, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. I pray that the Spirit would move through this room, that would, the Spirit would move through our hearts, and would motivate us to love you more and to see you for who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, my wife, Christina, and I had an opportunity to take a vacation And while we were on that trip, we spent part of our time on a five-day trek. And this trek took us through an area that we had never been to before. I'm not sure that we will ever be there again. So the night before we left for this trek, our guide met with us at our hotel and sat down with us and told us what to expect. He made sure that we had all of the supplies that we needed. He told us when he would be there the next day, told us where we would be going. It didn't really mean anything to us. It was a bunch of names we didn't recognize. But after he left that night, there was still really no way that we could have known what to expect over the next several days. And so the next morning he showed up with a driver and he and that driver led us from place to place. We stopped and toured different sites. And over the course of the day, we made our way toward the trailhead. And then we finally arrived at the trailhead to start this five-day trek that we would be going on. And we walked for another couple of hours. And then we found our first campsite. And by the time we got to this first campsite, there is probably no way we could have possibly found our way back to where we started, even if we had wanted to. And if not for our guide and for our driver, there's no way we could have made it to this campsite in the first place. So as we walked along for the next several days, our guide would tell us different stories, and often those stories were about different groups that he had been on this trek with because he does a five-day trek two to three times a month. That's where a lot of his stories come from. And as we were walking along, one of the stories that he told us was about a family that he had taken on this trek a few months ago. And this family, he said, showed up. It was two parents and two teenage daughters. And the two daughters were both on their high school track team. So as they made their way on this trek, he found that the two daughters were always trying to push the pace, always trying to speed things up to the point where even he, a man who does this trek several times a month, would have trouble keeping up with these two teenage girls at times. But the parents, on the other hand, were more content just to hang back, to walk slowly, to enjoy the scenery around them. And so even though he only had four people, he found his group was splitting. And eventually they talked about this and the parents said, well, why don't you go on ahead with our daughters? We'll move at our pace and you can let them go as fast as they want to and we'll catch up up with you at the campsite. So he agreed to do this. He starts going with the teenage daughters. They're walking, walking, walking. A couple hours later, he... Is starting to feel really tired because he's been moving faster than he's used to and also is growing worried about these two adults that he left back in the woods somewhere who have no clue where they're going so he suggests to the teenage daughters well why don't we sit here and take a break and we should let your parents catch up to us a little bit and see how they're doing but the girl said no we don't really want a break we want to keep on going but why don't you go back and check on our parents we'll be fine we'll keep on going So he thought about this some and said to them, okay, well, if there comes any point along the way where you're not sure which direction to go, just sit down, wait for me, don't go any further. And he started hiking back to go find their parents. He walks back for 30, maybe 45 minutes looking for these parents and finally finds them, gets to them and they say, yeah, everything's good, but where are our daughters? And he told them that they had gone up ahead. So they say to him, well, okay, you go ahead and catch up to them. We're still fine. We'll, We'll keep on moving at our pace. So now he's walked 30 to 45 minutes the wrong direction. All the while, the girls are going forward. He is moving as quickly as he can to try to catch up to these girls to make sure they're all right. And as he's walking, he eventually gets to the spot where he thinks he should be meeting up with them, and they are nowhere to be found. There's no sign that they were ever there. He can't hear movement anywhere around. He has absolutely no clue where they are. And so as he continues walking, finally he looks up and sees way up above him on the wrong path, about to turn a corner where he would never be able to see them again. These two high school girls are about an hour past where they made the wrong turn, about to turn where he will not be able to locate them. And he starts shouting to them, which fortunately there was enough of an echo that they're able to hear him. They recognize it's his voice. They look back and see that he's calling them back. And they were able to figure out the signals and come back to him. But they had walked an hour down the wrong path, uphill when they should have been going downhill because they decided that they could do this without their guide. These two girls were led into a journey that they never could have dreamed of finding on their own. And yet, once they started the journey, they decided they no longer needed their guide, and they could figure it out on their own. And it resulted in them wandering way off course into an area that could have been really dangerous for them, and who knows how long it would have taken for anyone to find them. As we look at this passage this morning, we find that the people of Galatia— are in a similar situation. They've been invited into this new faith, into this new family by Jesus, by his work on the cross. But somehow along the way, they've decided that from here on out, the rest of their growth is going to depend on their own strength. And so we find Paul calling them back to the truth of the gospel, reminding them that they aren't the ones who do the work, but that Jesus is the one who does the work. They've entered into this family through faith, but they've decided that the next steps depend on them. And Paul says, no, absolutely not. That's not how this works. In this passage, what we're going to find is that Paul reminds us both of how we enter into the family of God and also of how we continue to mature once we enter into that family. And what he says is that when we begin to depend on ourselves and our own strength, we find ourselves in great danger. We find ourselves with beliefs that could harm ourselves. So let's look back to this passage again and start off by thinking about how is it that we're welcomed into the family of God? Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law, or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul begins in this passage by reminding us of how we're welcomed into the family of God. And we see hints of this throughout this entire passage. If we look right at the beginning at verse 1, Paul reminds the Galatians that Jesus was portrayed as crucified before their eyes. That's how they initially entered into the family of God. And the commentators agree on this, that When Paul says that Jesus was portrayed as crucified before their eyes, he's not saying that the Galatians were actually physically present for Jesus' crucifixion. But what he's saying is that he verbally described the crucifixion to them so vividly and with such conviction that their hearts were moved and they became convinced of the truth of the gospel. And so they put their faith in Jesus after hearing the truth of the gospel. So Paul begins in verse one by reminding them of when they were first presented with the gospel. And then in verse 2, he challenges them to remember how it was that they came to receive the Spirit. He uses this rhetorical question to make his point. And the point that he's making is that it's not because of the works of the Galatians that they're welcomed into the family of God. But it's because they heard the truth of the gospel. They heard the truth about Jesus' sacrifice. And they had faith in Jesus after hearing. And then in verse 6, we see that Paul compares their faith to the faith of Abraham in Genesis 15, in the first book of the Bible, where we learn that God has promised Abraham that not only is he going to have a son as his heir, but his descendants will be so numerous, they'll be as numerous as the stars. And we find that Abraham believed God, and God counted his faith to him as righteousness. Now, the phrase that is translated as counted to him in this passage is actually a Greek term, and it's typically used as an accounting term in the Greek language. And this term means to give status to something that it didn't previously have. So one way that could be helpful to think about this term is if you think about a lease to buy situation. Uh, It may be somewhat ironic that I'm up here gonna talk about finances because some of you know I have really no grasp on finances at all. But if I'm totally wrong, tell me after the service. So in a lease to buy situation, initially, your payments are made to be able to continue to use that thing that you are leasing to buy, whether it's a car or a house or something like that. But the moment that you decide that you want to buy that thing, those payments take on new meaning. Suddenly, they go towards owning whatever that thing is that you're leasing to buy. And so that's the word that Paul is using here. He's using a word that says that this faith didn't previously have the meaning of righteousness, but God confers that status on the faith of Abraham, and he confers that same status on the faith of the Galatians and on us. He's saying that we don't enter into the family of God because our faith itself actually makes us righteous, but because God sees the faith of us broken, sinful people, and still he counts that as righteousness for us. In our brokenness and in our sinfulness, God sees our faith in Jesus, and he credits it to us so that he can treat us as if we were righteous. Through our faith, God grafts us into the family of Abraham. He counts us as descendants of this covenant that he makes with Abraham in Genesis 15. He counts us as his own sons and daughters because of, his, because of our faith. And then Paul goes more into this in verses 7 through 9. He says that those of faith are the sons of Abraham and are blessed along with Abraham. So throughout this passage, Paul's making it clear that it is not now nor was it ever by our own works that we're welcomed into God's family. In fact, in verse 8, Paul says that the Gentiles are justified by their faith. God justifies the Gentiles because of their faith. And when we use that word justified, what we're talking about is the process by where God counts us as righteous by his own mercy and grace. He declares us as righteous in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our brokenness. We're talking about when God calls us forgiven. He even considers us innocent on the basis of our faith in Jesus. Now, justification doesn't mean that we no longer struggle with sin. And it doesn't mean that suddenly, the moment that we declare our faith in Jesus, our will is perfectly aligned to God's. But what it means is that when we declare our faith in Jesus, the price for our sin is already paid because of Jesus' work on the cross. And so Paul reminds the Galatians that from the very beginning, it has always been God and not them, who's been doing the work of drawing them into his family. A few years ago, I worked with a person who had not really been exposed to the church at all growing up, wasn't familiar with the Christian faith, but was genuinely interested in learning more about it. And so, at the end of our day, when we were doing notes, she would often ask me about my beliefs. And each time we had these conversations, she seemed to be really present with me, was listening to the responses, was considering them. And sometimes our conversations would just be a few moments before we had to move on to something else. Other times they would go on for over an hour. But these conversations continued to happen for months. And one day while we were talking, she said to me that there are a lot of things about the Christian faith that she really liked. There were a lot of things that she could get on board with. She really liked the hope that comes with the idea that one day all things are going to be made new again. And the idea that things as they are right now are not as they were meant to be, that really resonated with her. She liked the idea of living in community with one another, of caring for one another. She liked the idea of the fact that we're invited into God's mission to make all things new. There were a lot of things that sounded really exciting to her, but there was one reason that she couldn't get on board with the Christian faith. She said she couldn't accept this idea that she was in need of a savior. She couldn't accept the idea that she was as if she was some damsel in distress waiting for rescue, helpless to save herself, because she wanted to believe that she could be her own savior, that she could make her own problems right, and that she could solve the problems that she saw around her. And so for that reason, she turned away, kind of stopped asking questions, was not interested in those conversations anymore because she had decided that this is just not for me. The reality is that even those of us who claim this faith often think the same way. Even if we get the idea that we were saved because of Jesus' work on the cross, we still somehow think that maybe we were chosen to be welcomed into God's family because we're just a little bit better than those other people. Or maybe it's because we worked a little bit harder to earn God's favor, and that's why he welcomed us into his family. But Paul, in this passage, is saying that's not true. He says that all of us are helpless, all of us are in need of rescue. And when Jesus saves us, we contribute absolutely nothing to our justification. But God in his mercy counts our faith as righteousness. Paul's saying that we aren't justified by our own good works. None of our good works will be enough for us to be welcomed into the family of God. But Jesus justifies us through our faith in his sacrifice. And if we look back at our passage, we'll find that Paul doesn't stop there. He says that God doesn't just stop there. God doesn't just do the work of justifying us, of bringing us into his family, and then leave us to figure out the rest. He doesn't leave us to do the rest of the work on our own, but he continues to be the one who works, even once we're welcomed into that family. So let's look back at verses 1 through 6 again. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, Starting in verse 3, we see Paul is making this distinction. He asks the Galatians, After you were justified in the Spirit, are you now being perfected by your flesh? And then in verse 5, he asks them, Does he among you who supplies the Spirit and works miracles do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul is repeatedly reminding the Galatians that just as it was Jesus who justified them through faith, It's also Jesus who continues their growth through their faith. Now, sometimes in the church, we make a distinction between these two words, justification and sanctification. So when we talk about justification, again, we're talking about how God declares us to be righteous while we're still sinful because of his mercy and his grace. And when we talk about sanctification, we're talking about the process by which the Spirit makes us more righteous. We become more whole because of our time with Jesus. And so what Paul is saying here is that We are both justified and sanctified by Jesus through our faith. The Galatians at some point have fallen into this trap of believing that God does the work of justification, God does the work of declaring us as righteous while we're still sinners, but sanctification, becoming more righteous, is somehow up to them. And this idea may come back to the Judaizers who I mentioned earlier. These people were false teachers who were going around Galatia and teaching that, yes, Jesus is important, he's a big part of the process, but you have to become culturally Jewish to be fully welcomed into the family of God. You have to adopt Jewish customs or you're not fully a member of the church. And so somehow the Galatians have begun to believe that once they've proclaimed their faith in Jesus and been welcomed into the family of God, somehow it's up to them to do the work of becoming sanctified. And Paul here says, no, that's not true. He says that God does the work of justifying, but God also sanctifies us. And our role is simply to have faith in Jesus and to grow in our faith in Jesus as he does the work of perfecting us. If we begin to accept that we are somehow responsible after we enter the family of God, if we begin to accept the idea that we're responsible for our own sanctification, we're responsible for making ourselves right, then we become like those two girls that I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon, aimlessly wandering away from our guide who led us to this journey in the first place, wandering off into dangerous beliefs that could be harmful to us. We can't do this on our own. We need Jesus to guide us through our sanctification, and we need him to do this work for us and in us. But we often fall into this trap, just like the Galatians, of believing that the work falls on us. That it's our responsibility to perfect ourselves. Honestly, even as I was looking at this passage this week, I wrestled with this idea. Many times we may believe that Jesus is the one who does the work, but when we think about what that looks like practically speaking, when we think about how do we allow Jesus to do that work, a lot of our responses come back to our own actions. We believe that if we want to be sanctified, we have to find behavior modification techniques that will allow us to leave behind our old sinful behaviors and adopt some new righteous behaviors. Where we believe that we need to completely restructure our schedule so that we're constantly engaged in spiritual disciplines to find growth. We believe that we need to constantly stay connected to our church community, and we need to be giving to our church, and we need to be surrounding ourselves by our brothers and sisters from the church and serving alongside them and living on mission. And if we do all of those things good enough, then maybe we'll finally find sanctification. This is where this becomes a struggle for many of us because none of those things that I just mentioned are bad things. In fact, when we're adopted into the family of God, we should have a desire to leave behind our old sinful past and to move on and grow in our righteousness. We should grow in our desire to be with Jesus and to be with our brothers and sisters in the family of God. But what we see in this passage is that none of our strivings None of our actions can be the source of our sanctification. Paul's saying that we aren't regenerated by any of the good works that we do. We're regenerated by Jesus alone through our faith in him. When we find ourselves full of guilt because we keep failing, when we find that we don't measure up to the standard that Jesus sets for us, and so we're left wondering if we really even believe any of this because we find our actions don't seem to match up with what we claim to believe, The solution is not to try harder or to find better systems to make ourselves better. The solution is Jesus. Not Jesus plus anything else. Simply Jesus. When we find ourselves struggling, we're called to turn to him, to grow in our faith, and by our faith in him, to see him transform us. Now, maybe as you hear that this morning, you find that that sounds really passive. Maybe it sounds like a cop-out to you. Maybe it sounds like we're letting ourselves off the hook if we really believe this, if we accept that it's actually not up to us to try to do better, but we just sit around and wait for Jesus to do the work in us. Or maybe it doesn't sound that bad to you, but you're really just not sure what this even looks like. And so you're left wondering, well, does this mean we go on living like we always did and just hope that... Somehow along the way, Jesus is going to perfect us? Well, if this does sound passive to you this morning, I would encourage you to reflect for a moment on how your striving has worked. How have your efforts worked for you? Have you been able to repair your own brokenness? Have you been able to fix the issues that you see within yourself? When you try harder to change your sin, do you find lasting change that takes hold even down to your motivations? Or have you found discouragement? Do you find that you continue to struggle with sin no matter what you try? Do you find that you even find ways around the systems that you put in place that were supposed to help you change? There may be times where we're able to leave behind our old habits and to establish new habits. But what we tend to find is that even in our success, even when we feel like we're doing well, when we depend on our efforts and our striving we tend to fall back into our old patterns eventually. Or maybe we stick with our new patterns, but we continue to long for those old patterns. And so we continue to struggle to stick with these new things because we just want so badly to go back to the old ways. Maybe what we find is that in order to leave behind our old patterns, we create new patterns by taking those same misguided sinful desires and pointing them in a new direction so that we focus on some new, less heinous pattern than what we started with. We may succeed at occasional behavior management, but even in our successes, we're often left feeling like a bunch of frauds, finding that we're still stuck with these desires for things that we know are wrong. Jesus invites us into real, lasting transformation. When we allow him to be the one who does the work on us, he promises to make us righteous, And so as we surrender to him, he takes our sinful, broken desires for things that are not him, and he replaces them with rich desires to be more like him, to be with him more, to love people around us more like he does. We don't surrender to Jesus out of laziness or as a way of excusing ourselves from doing work. We surrender to Jesus because we've found ourselves to be incapable of repairing the brokenness within ourselves. But he promises that he can make things right, and he will do what he's promised us. So what does it look like for us to grow in our faith in Jesus? If we want to surrender to him, if we want to surrender our lives and grow in our trust for him, how do we go about doing that? Well, if we look back to verse 1 again, we see the answer to that. Paul says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. When we understand Jesus' work on the cross, we find ourselves moved to put our faith in Jesus. When we understand Jesus' sacrifice that he made for us, and when we understand our desperate need for that sacrifice, we're moved to put our faith in him so that we can be called righteous in spite of our sinfulness. When we're reminded of the horror and the beauty of the cross, as the innocent one surrendered his life, to violent punishment for our sins so that we could be forgiven. We're then moved to grow in our faith in Jesus so that he can grow us in our righteousness. That's why we take time each week when we gather together to be reminded of the gospel. We need to be reminded of the gospel each week. We need to be reminded of the gospel each day. We need constant reminders of Jesus' work on the cross, of his sacrifice for us. We need to be reminded that our God in heaven chose to become a man, chose to come and walk on this earth among us, and he came and lived the perfect life that we could not. He attained the standard that we continue to miss in spite of all of our strivings, and yet he still allowed himself to suffer in our place. He surrendered himself to our death, to death on a cross, so that he could pay the price for our sins, so that We could be called righteous in spite of our sinfulness. And then he promises that one day he is going to make all things new. And that promise includes our brokenness and our sinfulness. He promises renewal when we put our faith in him and when we surrender our lives to him. If we want to grow in our righteousness, we must put our faith in Jesus We must surrender our lives to him and trust that he will do the work that we're unable to do. When we put our faith in him, we're able to lay aside our failures, to lay aside our strivings, and to allow him to take the control for us. If we want to grow in our faith, we have to keep coming back to the cross. We need to keep being reminded of the work that Jesus has already done for us, the sacrifice that he's already made for us, so that we can grow in our faith and the promises that he has made to us. This morning, if we are seeking newness of life, then we must turn to Jesus because he is the one who can make us righteous through our faith in his sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our brokenness often seems too big to be repaired. We confess that we find ourselves lost and wandering without you. And so we thank you that you have promised to be the perfecter of our faith. We thank you that you have promised that you are the one who will do the work for us if we trust you. Father, we thank you that you don't struggle to repair the brokenness. You aren't overwhelmed by the brokenness as we are, but that you have a good plan to make all things new. And so we pray that you would take our lives... We surrender them to you. We pray that you would take control, that you would make us more righteous, that you would make us more like you. You would give us holy desires to see your kingdom come. We pray that you would open our eyes to the opportunities we have to simply spend time with you and grow in our faith in you. And Jesus, I pray that you would enlarge our vision of your power, enlarge our vision of what you've promised. Help us to see the beauty of the renewal that you have promised. I pray that you would create a longing in our hearts to see that happen in our city, in ourselves, in our world. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.